Thank you. If you are a rock climber, which I am not, the most daunting challenge is to climb the El Capitan. It is a vertical rock formation at Yosemite National Park and is largely a granite monolith that is about 3,000 feet from base to summit along its tallest face. On June 3, 2017, Alex Hanold, after eight years of dreaming, one and a half years of training, and 60 practice climbs, climbed El Capitan without any safety gear. It took almost four hours to climb the structure where one wrong step would result in his death. For everyone else, this is an impossible task. And this morning, I would be trying to scale an insurmountable mountain when I tried to talk about the wisdom of man, but more so if I tried to talk about the wisdom of God. But this morning, we're going to scratch the surface in a sermon entitled, Depth in the Heights. And our text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, through the end of chapter 1, and through all of chapter 2. We will not be going verse by verse, because there are too many deep verses in this passage, but we will pick out some points. I've divided this sermon into four parts. In the first part, we will look at the question, what is wisdom? In the second part, we will look at human wisdom. In the third part, we will look at the wisdom of God. And in the fourth part, we will look at a specific application of the wisdom of God as regards to the death of Christ on the cross. So first, let's look at the question, what is wisdom? I'm not trying to be philosophical here. There may be somebody here who is a philosopher. I'm not trying to answer the question from a philosophical standpoint. But what I want to do is to look at wisdom from a scriptural standpoint and from what a common man thinks about wisdom. The usual confusion is with the words wisdom and knowledge. And I've got to remind you that many times in scripture, the words wisdom and knowledge are used synonymously. One can be used for the other one. So the next time you read the Bible and it says knowledge, that need not be exclusively knowledge. It can also mean wisdom. But the definition of wisdom I've taken from J.I. Packer's book, Concise Theology, in which he says, wisdom in scripture means choosing the best and noblest end at which to aim, along with the most appropriate and effective means to it. It means making the most efficient choices to reach the best goal. That is wisdom, making the most efficient choices to reach the best goal. If that is wisdom, that presupposes that you know what the goal is and you know what the choices are and now you are faced with the goal and the choices and you are choosing the best choice to get to that goal. So wisdom in that sense is above knowledge and uses knowledge, therefore wisdom is applied knowledge. Can you have knowledge without wisdom? Of course, kids grow up without knowledge or wisdom. They get some knowledge first and then wisdom comes along later and shows them what to do with that knowledge. In fact, in the last verse of Luke chapter 2, it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor with God and man and stature in favor with God and man. So Jesus as a human being grew in wisdom and all of us grow in knowledge and wisdom. So let me give an example. We all know because we are drivers, we know that green means go, 
Yellow means slow down and red means stop. That is knowledge, right? But as you're driving, if you're like me, you're thinking about something else and suddenly you see a yellow light. What, what you do next is based on wisdom because you have knowledge already. What you do next, whether you stop or you hit the accelerator, depends on multiple variables, whether you are driving a small car or a big car, whether there are kids in the back or not, whether uh, you're going uphill or downhill, whether you are close to the intersection or not. Sometimes we are, if we are further away from the intersection and we come upon the yellow light suddenly, we sometimes choose to stop and then we decide to go, we choose to stop. And sometimes we can end up either crossing on the red or we end up in the middle of the intersection, then we got to back up a little bit. But that is wisdom. That is wisdom. You are using existing knowledge in each scenario. So when your child blurts out private family conversations in their school, they are not using wisdom, and they need to slowly gain wisdom. Secondly, let's look at human wisdom. Now, there are many terms that are used for wisdom, but I will narrow it down to three kinds of wisdom. The meaning of wisdom is the same in all three. It means applied knowledge. The first kind is what I will call secular wisdom. And these three terms are my own terms, so you will not find the exact term in scripture, but, but let me just try to draw a difference between these three kinds of wisdom. The first one is secular wisdom. This has Greek origins. The pre-Socratic Ionian philosophers in the sixth century BC wanted to develop wisdom from human reason alone without acknowledging the existence of God. And so that's where this wisdom came from. It starts with humans. And there is no moral component to it. And because it starts with humans, it does not lead to God. This wisdom does not lead to God. You can be a philosopher with Greek wisdom and never come to God because this wisdom doesn't come to God. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. The world through its wisdom for 600 years before Christ did not know him. This wisdom is the same wisdom that we have today, even though it started 600 years before Christ, the same anti-theistic, humanistic wisdom that we have today is the same wisdom that tries to explain wisdom apart from God and through human reason alone. The second kind of wisdom is what I will call scriptural wisdom, and it has its origins in the Old Testament. It is a Hebrew wisdom. So when you read the wisdom books in the Old Testament, the five wisdom books of the Old Testament, you find that this wisdom starts with God. This wisdom starts with God, has a divine origin, and therefore it leads to God. It has a moral component to it. So when you read the wisdom books, you will find this kind of wisdom trying to differentiate all the time between good and evil. There is a moral component to it. And when you read the leadership books in the New Testament, Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and they talk about qualities of a leader, one of the things is wisdom. And why? Because a leader should be able to differentiate between good and evil. 
because of the moral component to it. A clear distinction between the humanistic secular wisdom and the godly scriptural wisdom is seen in James chapter 3 verses 14 onwards and let me read it for us. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, in quotes, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Wow. The Bible just said that humanistic, secular wisdom is demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So godly wisdom has good undertones to it as opposed to evil undertones to it. Secular wisdom has evil undertones. Godly wisdom has good undertones. The third kind of wisdom is what I will call spiritual wisdom. Now, I want to draw a small difference between scriptural wisdom and spiritual wisdom. There's only one difference between the two. Otherwise, spiritual wisdom is exactly like scriptural wisdom. It is available for any believer. Spiritual wisdom, the third kind of wisdom... The only difference between that and the second kind of wisdom, the godly wisdom, is that the third kind is a spiritual gift listed as one of the gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The godly kind of wisdom, the second kind of wisdom, is available to all believers. But the third kind of wisdom is for those who it is given as a gift. Of course, you can ask for it because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31, it reads, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. If you have regular godly wisdom and you want superior spiritual wisdom, which is a gift, ask God. Ask God and he can give you the spiritual gift of wisdom. Let me look at three quick applications before we go into the next section. Three quick applications. One, God will destroy and frustrate human wisdom. He can make human wisdom look foolish. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 reads, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. God can easily muddy human wisdom. There's a story in the Old Testament of David who had a counselor by the name of Ahithophel. And his son, David's son, usurped the throne of his father. And when that, uh, when that incident happened, the advisor, Ahithophel, switched sides, um, changed allegiances from David to his son. So as David was escaping, he prayed, Lord, turn the advice of Ahithophel into garbage. Garbage is my term for it. But turn the advice of Ahithophel into garbage. And that's what happened. God muddied the wisdom of the wise man so that he gave bad advice. Now, based on that incident, in the last few years, I've been praying for human wisdom to be muddied, especially for people that are very rich and powerful 
and use their influence for anti-theistic, anti-biblical purposes around the world. I've been praying that God would muddy their wisdom and turn whatever they touch into garbage, because he can. The Bible says that he will destroy, he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He will destroy secular wisdom. There are numerous examples from the medical field to show you that human wisdom, purely human wisdom, without any divine interference, can self-destruct. Let me give you an example. Um, for many years, we thought that if a patient had hip or knee replacement and they needed a second surgical procedure for whatever, they needed to get preoperative antibiotics. So for years, we gave preoperative antibiotics to every patient that got a hip or knee replacement and needed a second procedure. Then several years ago, they changed the protocol and said, well, only if you have uh, the hip or knee replacement within two years and you need a second surgical procedure, we'll give you the, the antibiotic. But in 2013, they changed the protocol again, according to the American Association of Orthopedic Surgery. They said that there is absolutely no benefit of taking antibiotics before a second surgical procedure, so you don't need to give it. You see, in 15 years, we went a complete about-face on, on what we thought was fixed medical knowledge. And, and there are numerous examples from the medical field that I can tell you, and probably you can tell me from your own fields, of things that we thought were just amazing and right, and then 15 years later or 50 years later, it's absolute nonsense and garbage. Who knows, maybe the, the medical things we talk about and your doctors tell you may be complete nonsense in 20 years. But we are stuck with what we have. <laughs> and God will destroy and frustrate human wisdom. The second application is that we can use godly wisdom in our lives. We can use godly wisdom in our lives. Let me give you the example of Solomon. When Solomon, the son of David, became king, he asked God for just one thing. He asked God, Lord, give me wisdom. That was his only request. And so God gave him wisdom more than he could handle. And I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of the first case that he tried. He was a king and a judge at that point. But his decision with godly wisdom was so profound that the Bible says this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. He used godly wisdom to be a judge which means that you can use godly wisdom, and if you're asking for that third kind of superior wisdom, you can, ask, you can use spiritual wisdom in your workplace to do your job at work. There are numerous times in my workplace as I'm praying about my, my work and the staff and all that, I get ideas that, that I know are beyond me. It did not come from my own white matter or gray matter. It did not. It came from beyond me. Ideas I know are from above, and I execute them, and it works great. As you pray for your whatever, whatever problem you are praying for, use godly wisdom. Receive the wisdom that God wants to give, and use it for life. The third application, very quickly, 
is um, just three lines on how to get wisdom. A sermon on wisdom is kind of incomplete without telling you how to get wisdom. Three steps to it is first you got to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you will be struggling with secular wisdom and that won't lead you anywhere. The first thing is to be in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says that the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. The Spirit of God knows the deepest things in God. If God is the highest heights, the Spirit of God knows the deepest depths in the highest heights. And when a person becomes a believer, that Spirit of God is in us. And when the Spirit of God is in us, we are able to know the deepest depths in God in our frail human minds. And then there is this incredible verse at the end of chapter 2, which Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The second step to getting wisdom is by desiring it. James chapter 1 verse 5 talks about asking God for wisdom. God does not give you secular wisdom. He will give you scriptural and spiritual wisdom. The third step is fearing God. In Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10, it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God will cause us to worship him more and will cause us to avoid sin. Okay, so the fear of God is necessary for us to get wisdom. All right, in the third section, let's move to the wisdom of God. And I'm almost embarrassed to talk about the wisdom of God in, in two minutes. When I see you in heaven, you're going to come to me 5,000 years from now, and you're going to come to me and say, did you even attempt to talk about the wisdom of God on earth? And so I apologize, and I'm going to defer those questions in heaven to, to God. But the wisdom of God is defined by Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, as uh, the means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best way to reach the goals. Now, just like we made a difference between wisdom and knowledge, I'm going to differentiate between God's knowledge and God's wisdom. God's knowledge is called as omniscience. And the omniscience of God or the knowledge of God is defined as that attribute of God by which God knows all things actual and potential. God knows all things actual and potential. Okay, just to differentiate between God's knowledge and my knowledge. I know things that are actual after it happens. Okay, so I woke up this morning, I happened to wake up at 3.15, woke up this morning at 3.15, um, prepared the sermon a little bit, uh, we got ready, drove about an hour and 10 minutes, came here, talked to a couple of people, and I came up here and I am speaking. That is what actually happened, and I know what actually happened. But what I don't know is what potentially could have happened in the last eight hours. There are a million things that could have potentially happened, and God knows every one of them. In my life, let's say that I live to 70 years. In my 70 years, I will probably remember some of the actual things that happen. But there are an infinite potential things that I don't know 
that God knows. Imagine that knowledge of God. And now imagine that God knows every potential thing for 7 billion people on earth. And the billions that have lived before. He knows every potential thing. That is the knowledge of God by which he knows all the possibilities. In the midst of all the possibilities, the wisdom of God chooses one of them for me to walk through. Of all the potential things that could have happened today, God chose one path for me to walk through, and that is the wisdom of God. So in Romans chapter 11 and verse 33, it reads, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. God's wisdom guarantees that God will bring you to the best goal in the shortest, in the best possible time. And that should be a comfort for us if we are going through some difficulty, whether it's a cancer or a sickness or a death or a job loss or whatever issue you are going through. The comfort is that the wisdom of God has decided that for you, the best possible way to reach the best goal is this particular way. And it could not be another best way. This is the way. God's wisdom is seen in three main things in scripture. It is seen in creation, it is seen in preservation, and it is seen in redemption. And we will come to the issue of redemption and the wisdom of God. Fourthly, we will look at the death of Christ on the cross and how the wisdom of God is related to the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it reads, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is a power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. How is it foolishness? How is the message of the cross foolishness? What is the part in the gospel message that is foolishness? Maybe it is a question, how is it possible to get glory through suffering? Maybe that is the part that is foolishness. Because from a human standpoint, if somebody is suffering, that is bad. If somebody is being tortured, that is bad. That is not a good thing. How can that lead to glory? This this question was raised in the book of Job several millennia before Christ. And Job went through suffering in the Old Testament without any apparent reason. And for 30-odd chapters, he and his friends just talked about it. And if you read through that... At some point, you're like, what? who is talking what? What on earth is happening here? They are talking back and forth about it. But the question still went unanswered. When Job suffered and asked the question why, God responded by asking him other questions that he wouldn't know the answer to. So God asked him 77 other questions on astronomy, cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, and origins. And with each question, Job got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Because he didn't know the answer to it. If you've seen the cartoon growing up on um, Tom and Jerry, Tom is the cat and he's always chasing Jerry around. And sometimes that results in a lot of mayhem in the house. Sometimes there's a human being 
in this. And you see the human being from the waist down, it's this uh, chubby legs, and you see the chubby legs and this person. And so Tom comes screaming through the door, head held high, looking for Jerry. And then this person starts berating Tom because of all the mayhem that happened. And you see, and as the berating happens, you see Tom's head go lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. Finally, he skinks out through the back door with his tail between his legs. And that's the feeling I get that Job did. He came asking the question, why? And with each of the 77 questions, Job's head goes lower and lower and lower because he does not know the answer to it. Fast forward a few millennia. Jesus is now hanging on the cross with no apparent human reason. He had lived a perfect life and was falsely accused and killed. As he hangs, he asks the Father this question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Job, we see a human face in agony asking the question, why? In Jesus, we see a divine face in agony asking the question, why? When Job asked, why is there suffering for the innocent, God showed Job some things that he just can't understand. There is an answer. It's just that Job is not able to understand the answer. And so God shows some other questions, other questions that Job could not understand. And God did not directly answer the question. On the cross, when Jesus asked the question, why, there was no answer either. So it ended up being a rhetorical question. But the answer was obvious. Why did the innocent Jesus have to suffer so that a guilty world could go free? Why did an innocent Jesus have to suffer? Because God knew that humans could not suffer for their own sins. They would not survive the penalty of their sin. Why did an innocent Jesus have to suffer? Because God so loved the world. God had the knowledge. The knowledge was the goal, and the goal was his glory at the end of it. But he had some choices, and now his wisdom was coming into play. Humans had sinned, and they deserved death. His love precluded him from killing off humans. But he couldn't excuse sin because of his justice, so there needed to be another way. He had two options. One option was to kill humans and let his son go free. The second option was to let his son go to save humans. And as his wisdom grappled with the choices, he decided to let his son go. In 2004, Gillian Searle of Perth in Western Australia, her husband, their two sons aged five and two, went to Thailand for a Christmas vacation. But on December 26th, disaster struck. A massive earthquake occurred with resulting tsunamis that killed over 230,000 people in 14 countries with waves as tall as 100 feet. The earthquake caused the entire planet to vibrate as much as one centimeter. Gillian and her family were at this beach resort when the waves hit. Her husband had gone up to their room to get some towels, but before he came back, the waves hit. 
And when the waves hit, Jillian was there with her two sons, age five and two. With one hand, she grabbed something to steady herself, and in a split second, she had to decide what to do with the other hand. Because you see, she had two sons. In that split second, she decided to grab the hand of the two-year-old. And in deciding to save the two-year-old, she also decided to let the five-year-old get washed in the waters. When God decided to choose us, he was also deciding to let his son go. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I'm going to give a time for anyone who wants to respond to the sermon. I'm going to give the time for three groups of people to respond to the sermon. If there's anyone here who still follows secular wisdom and has never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray a prayer that we will pray in a minute. If there's anyone here, the second group of people, if there's anyone here who is a believer but has not pursued wisdom, you can ask God. You can ask God for wisdom and he will give you wisdom more than our finite brains can handle. And thirdly, maybe there's somebody here who is going through a difficult time. The encouragement of the wisdom of God is that it could not have been any other better way. This was the best way that God has for you to reach the goal. Let's close our eyes and pray. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. And if it is a prayer that comes up from the bottom of your heart, God will answer it. The God who let his son go is able to draw you close to him. You can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have been thinking with my secular wisdom. And I want to ask you to come into my life. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit that knows the depth of God and is able to fill me. I ask you to come into my life and make me complete. Help me to live a life that you have called me. In Jesus' name, amen.